morning, Southbridge. Welcome. We are glad you're here. If uh, you're a guest, we're so glad you've chosen to be here on this holiday weekend and that you took, uh, found the courage to come to a theater for church. And if you're watching uh, online the podcast, welcome. You missed out uh, on some new uh, form of worship for us. This was Southbridge first. That was our, I think, our attempt, noble attempt at bluegrass, except for we had flute and, and some organ, so that might have been like neo-grass or astroturf, is what I've been saying. So if you're in the town, if you're a local, if you're around, you haven't been able to make your way to Southbridge, but you listen online, please come. We'd love to greet you with a hug and, and just give you a warm reception here. Um, if this is your first time here, we welcome you to take some time to fill out the connection card, which you can find attached to your worship bulletin. Please fill that out. Let us know how you heard about Southbridge and take that filled out card to the connection kiosk where we have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying thank you for being here today. We also showed a video this morning for those of you that are watching online uh, that we all got to see here about a new ministry the church is going to be starting soon called Reclaim 117. And it's really our uh, desire to come together to to bless our city, bless our world, and um, being about the things that God's heart is about, uh, widows and orphans. And so we're going to be beginning this ministry, really launching the ministry off of the 5K run. You'll get more information about that soon. And if you'd like to come to that run, you can join me by walking at it. That's what I'll be doing. I'm not, I think you have to have like a mental edge to run distances. There's something unique about long-distance runners, and I don't have it. I am a mental midget when it comes to that way. I keep talking myself out of distances. Maybe to that stop sign, maybe, maybe here, no, maybe to the end of my drive. I'm going back inside. That's what I do. This morning we're continuing our series, actually concluding our series called Supernatural. We're looking at the Spirit of God, His work in our lives, and how He cultivates His character, God's character in our lives. About a 10-week series, and this morning we're concluding it. Uh, more of a somber talk, I think, this morning, if uh, the Lord is going to work it out the way He did our first hour. And I'm just going to trust in Him that He'll speak uh, through me with the voice He's given me. I'm trusting Him the whole way that He'll keep me from believing lies while I'm speaking. And I'm going to ask Him right now, too, to help us um, be ready to receive His Word. Would you pray with me? I'll pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful, Lord, that... You inhabit the praise of your people. Lord, thank you for the special gifts and abilities you've given Pastor Jad and the team that led us this morning through song. And Lord, it's amazing. Music was your idea. And even in our feeble attempts, Lord, you love it. You love it when your children praise your name. We're grateful to participate. You are worthy of it. Lord, as we open up your word, would you instruct us and teach us? Would you show us the way we should go? Would you undo us and break us? Lord, whatever you need to do, we give you permission to do because you are the Lord. Lord, we want to be a changed people. As a church, Lord, we want to be the church you want us to be for the sake of this city, for the world around us, Lord, so that others may come to know you as we're coming to know you. And Lord, we just want to do this and study your word and be changed for your glory ultimately. So Lord, we invite you to do your work of life change. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is really the whole theme of this study supernatural. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, for those of you who are trying to find it, don't be embarrassed. Find it in your Bible. And what we know about this book, it was a letter actually written from a church planner, an apostle named Paul, who has a crazy life story that God just radically changed him. He used to actually hate the way of Jesus. He used to hate people that followed Jesus, and God invaded his heart and changed him from the inside out. And now he's planting churches and telling people about Jesus. And from time to time, he wrote letters to the Christians in different provinces that needed encouragement. And this is one of those letters that we have still today, a letter written to the Christians in Galatia. 
And we know that these people that were receiving this letter had said yes to Jesus Christ as the champion and savior of their life. They believed that Jesus was the only way to the Father, the only way to heaven. They exchanged their former way of life for the life of Christ. But after that had happened, there was some popular um, beliefs that took place and were rooting themselves in the hearts of the lives of the Christians in Galatia. One such response was that since Christ is in my life, some believed, then I maintain my friendship and relationship with Christ by making sure I obey all the old rules in Judaism and some of the new ones that we're coming up with. And Paul said, well, how did you begin the relationship with Jesus? And the response ought to be and was faith. Well, that's how you continue in it. See, when we try to add stuff onto the gospel, like Jesus plus me saying no to these things will equal salvation someday, that's moralism at best, legalism at worst, which is an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus did all the work. However, there was another popular response to those that received Christ, and they said, since we've received Christ and Jesus did all the work on the cross, his death and resurrection, then I can live as I want to live. Hey, I believe Jesus is the way. I've got my ticket to heaven. I can live how I want. And Paul, who led them to Christ, said, that's not God's intention for you. His desire is that you would live by his spirit for the sake of the world around you and for his glory and so you have these extremes this extreme of trying to place burdens on ourselves to try to somehow make god happy when he already loves you and also this idea that god doesn't care what i do with my life and that couldn't be further from the truth so paul is trying to encourage the recipients of this letter and we find ourselves at the end of this letter with a focus that we have galatians chapter 5 and we'll start in verse 16 just to give context because context always gives always gives meaning to a text Context always gives meaning to sentences and phrases in Scripture. So we're going to get ourselves in the context. Chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Anybody experienced that before? No one, just me. I'll be preaching to myself again. They're in conflict with each other, so you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So he's undoing that first belief. The acts of the sinful nature, then, are obvious. So the opposite of the Spirit would be things like this. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, that sounds very similar, like you're saying if I stay away from these things, then I get into heaven, but if I do these things, I don't go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a life that's been transformed by Christ, has a new pattern, a pattern of walking with the Spirit. And this is the truth about Christians. Every Christian would admit to the world that we're hypocrites, because sometimes we say yes to the Spirit, and sometimes we say no. But as the new desire within us to say yes to the Spirit, Paul is talking to a people and about a people on that list that will not inherit the kingdom of a people that have never submitted their lives, have never placed their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ. The pattern they are living is a trust and faith in these other things for the joy of life. That's why he can make such a claim. But the fruit of the Spirit, the supernatural characteristic of God is what will be developed in those that have said yes to Christ. And it will be at God's pace. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Make all the laws you want to about these things. (laughs) Keep striving for these things. Keep living out God's character. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And that is the truth. That is, uh, Jesus did the work and is doing the work. Daily dying to ourselves. 
Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And the truth then is that for believers, and this letter was written to Christians, an attempt to encourage and instruct and admonish believers, is that sometimes we live by the Spirit and sometimes we don't. We live by our flesh. But freedom will be found when we live by the Spirit. Christ says the truth will set you free, and it's for freedom's sake that you've been set free. And so this morning we conclude this series by looking at that last characteristic, self-control. Your translation may say, if you have the king's language in your Bible, temperance. The fact that self-control exists as a fruit of God's spirit implies that there's a battle, doesn't there, between a divided self. When I go to the food court at the mall, I am terribly divided. What will I choose? It implies that our self produces desires that we should not satisfy, but instead control. And let me just be honest up front that really what this really is about, this characteristic about, is our bodies. Our bodies and our appetites. And this message is, is serious. There's not a lot of funny found in this message. I can tell you, I can be uh, vulnerable with you and share a story with you that several years ago I was um, on the phone with a dear friend and we were just battling over an issue in his life and I was fighting that he would make a certain decision. It was an opportunity to reconcile And he wasn't interested, and I was just battling. And guess what? I couldn't make him do the thing I thought he ought to do. Does anybody else have control issues? I was pleading. We were bawling together, crying together over such terrible things and opportunity in life. And after a several-hour conversation, after me not being able to get what I wanted, a result that I wanted out out of this person, and I felt terrible. In my life, oftentimes, my life's aim is to feel good. Does anybody else have that? So my response, my response is I went to McDonald's, it was like 10 p.m., and I ordered almost one of everything. And see, we can joke about gluttony, can't we? But we can't joke about rape. We can't joke about other harsh things, because gluttony, that's okay. Everyone understands. It's a smaller form of idolatry. It's a smaller issue of self-control. So I order one of everything and I eat it and guess what? McDonald's has figured out a way to make you feel good for five minutes. That's the truth and no one can deny it. They've got a monopoly on kids for sure. But later, it only brought shame to me. Guilt. Stomach issues. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, the same guy that wrote this letter to the people in Galatia, he wrote a letter to Christians in a city called Philippi. And he writes, he says, with tears in his eyes because he loves these people so much, that enemies of the cross of Christ have a destiny of destruction, meaning hell is their future. Jesus talks about hell. It's kind of popular right now to say hell doesn't exist, but Jesus talked about it a lot. I'd go with Jesus, by the way. Paul writes that people that are enemies of the cross, that their God is their stomach, and that their mind is on earthly things. When I read a passage like that, I filter my life through it and think, then who who is my master? Who is my God today? See, when our appetite is the master, then we have a master that will only bring shame. Has anyone experienced that? Any kind of appetite related to your flesh and your body. It only brings shame. It never brings freedom. For some of us, we have appetites for such terrible things that it keeps bringing us back to that terrible thing, even though we don't want to do it. We are completely out of control. And the truth is this. Isn't this true that knowing the truth about what our desires produces, though, isn't enough to stop us to do from the thing that's calling us to keep doing Isn't it true that people do things all the time that they know will hurt their own bodies? Hmm. Or hamper spiritual growth? 
See, without control, without self-control, we only serve ourselves and our appetites. So actually, self-control is an amazing gift from God to save us from ourselves. But it has to come from God's Spirit. Without self-control, we only serve ourselves. So self-control allows us then to serve others rather than ourselves, which Jesus is really into because he demonstrated it, didn't he? See, the truth is that we can control our desires when it comes to things that we don't really want. I'm never, to tempt, I'm never tempted to enter into an all-you-can-eat mayonnaise contest. I have complete victory over mayonnaise contests because mayonnaise is my kryptonite. So when we look at lists, we look at the list in Galatians, we look at other lists, we look at the things that Christians ought not do, we like to look at that and say, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. I only have like two out of the 11. Because it's true that all of us aren't tempted in the same ways or in the same areas. But that doesn't say anything yet about self-control being developed in us. Because some people just don't have an interest in some things. The problem comes in when we have desires that are actively set on something. See, the Greek understanding of self-control would be that it's power over oneself, self-mastery. And many scholars believe that this word self-control is really about sexual purity. So when they were to write about this word self-control, those scholars did write just everything about it. And guess what? Paul talks a lot about it in his letters to these churches as he's encouraging them. Almost all scholars agree that this supernatural ability has something to do with our bodies and desires being subdued. The word self-control uh, was translated in Greek time or in Paul's time as a word that would be placed on those that participated in athletic games. It was a word that modified who a true committed athlete was. Think of all the discipline it takes to become an Olympic athlete. Think of all the things that those girls that were on our Olympic, uh, Olympic gymnastics team, the things they had to say no to and yes to to pull off what they pulled off. I can tell you this, that I can't do backflips on a little beam. <laughs> in fact, I can't get onto the beam and just stand on it. Nope. So we know that this word self-discipline can be related to that. It could be used of those that were athletes. And we know in history, history tells us that many athletes said no to sexual intimacy during the course of their competition and no to certain kind of foods. But we don't want something that is, God doesn't want something for us that's just our self-will ability. See, but the idea of this word being placed on an athlete, Paul takes advantage of this and then writing another church in Corinth, he links that word to things that are happening in the life of a believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'll just read for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he writes this, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That idea of competes and stuff, I believe that we get our root word agonize out of it. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. <laughs> they do it to get a crown that will not last, right? We're here today, gone tomorrow. We're like grass, we wither. Our life is a vapor, the scriptures tell us. But we do it. We, we participate in this um, followership of Christ. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. The Christians are supposed to be about the things that last for eternity. Go to the next verse, please. Therefore, I, meaning Paul, do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. Here's the body idea then. So self-control, we know by Scripture, is related to something to do with our bodies. If meekness, like we talked about last week, was really the internal passions being under restraint, self-control is for sure about internal and then to the external, our bodies, what we do, how we live. I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Some people will translate this idea that Paul whipped himself. That's penance. Um, Penance is not a part of followership with Christ because Jesus paid the price. It's not Jesus plus still feeling bad about the naughty things equals freedom. Jesus gives freedom. 
So the idea of beating our bodies is saying no. And that feels like a beating sometimes, doesn't it? Any of you have children that when you go to the checkout line, you know the grocery store people put candy and stuff right by the checkout line for your sake. And when you say no to your child, they freak out. And as a parent of five now, we don't know what we're doing. I resonate then with other parents that have children that are giving them a hard time at the grocery store. But children grow up to be adults that struggle with being told no and saying no to themselves. Saying no even when it hurts is what Paul is talking about, really. Running from sin, fighting the flesh, pressing toward imitating Christ, constant and trusting in him. These are efforts, these are rigors that the Christian must participate in. So if you like taking notes, you can write this down and think about, that, this, about this this week. What is godly self-control? Here's a definition for you that we've come up with. Godly self-control, then, is the spirit-given ability to have victory over desire with the goal of glorifying God. And that motive is key. The goal of glorifying God. The spirit-given ability to have victory over desire with the goal of glorifying God. See, deeper than this, it's, it's really just a trusting God with our lives. To live for his glory, as, to have his glory as our life's goal, and then living in a way that makes that goal possible. Because the truth is that we can live for our own glory, our own fame, and we are quickly vanishing from view, the scriptures tell us. Or we could have his renown on our lips and on our hearts. And this happens through how we use our bodies. Amazingly. See, we see this kind of supernatural self-control demonstrated in Christ. You might have this passage hidden in your heart. Do you remember in the Gospels when the scriptures say this, that after Christ was baptized, immediately the Spirit led him into the wilderness. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. And he did something for 40 days. Do you remember what it was? So he fasted for 40 days, which is a supernatural fast. We see a couple other examples of that all throughout scripture. And in time, Satan, the accuser, tempts Jesus to turn some stones into bread. Now, I can tell you that a thing that I believed growing up for some reason was that, well, that's not really tempting for Jesus because he's God. If anyone goes without food for 40 days, do you think they're hungry? I can go 30 minutes, maybe. Food joke, which is inappropriate, but acceptable in church. He's hungry. See, by saying he's not hungry, he's actually diminishing his, his humanity. Jesus is not half God, half man. He's fully God and fully man. Has to be. Has to be. So that temptation is legit. Do you know what Jesus says back to Satan? Because Jesus is certainly hungry. So his body is saying, food sounds like a great idea. I'll make some rye, pumpernickel, and some Wonder Bread. No. Do you know what he says? My father's will is my food. The scriptures say, accuser, that no one will live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Awesome. That's real. And that was spirit-given. Jesus lived by the spirit. He was led into the wilderness by the spirit. It wasn't just an example for us that we try hard for. It's a life that can be lived in our lives today, in 2012, by the power of the Holy Spirit. His body says eat, but his mouth says no. He can't eat something. Why can't he eat something? Because the Father hasn't given him permission yet. The reality is that this kind of self-control, though, just like every other fruit that we've looked at, is unattainable by human effort. (laughs) That's why it's of the Spirit of God. And you could say, well, aren't there non-Christians, aren't there non-believers that can say no to sexual morality, that can say no to all the naughty things that Christians think they shouldn't do? 
Isn't it possible for non-believers to be really disciplined? Isn't it possible for believers to say no to murder and no to hatred? Aren't non-believers really good at intolerance? And the answer has to be, loved ones, yes. But that's not spirit-given self-control. So we have to then distinguish then, because each fruit that we've looked at has a fake fruit, just like many of our kitchens have. So what is the fake fruit of self-control? It's a self-discipline, but that motive and that definition is what distinguishes. So this one, again, if you're trying to judge the fruit of other people, which we're not good at, some of us think we're good at it. We can barely even know ourselves. But the nuance, it's actually the motive that makes self-control from the Spirit and worldly self-discipline different. And do you remember what the motive is? It's for the glory of God. See, that's the issue. The difference between worldly self-discipline and godly self-control is crucial. The difference is who will get the glory for the victory. We get the glory or Christ gets the glory. If we exercise self-control by faith in Christ's superior power and pleasure, Christ will get the glory. The Bible tells us that a person who is not in Christ never does anything for the glory of God. It's impossible. Even the righteous and nice and noble things they do in this world, they give things away benevolently, which is a form of love. God sees that as just, it's filthy rags before him. You can't earn God's affection. You can't, you can't drum up stuff for God's glory in yourself if you don't have Christ. And those who live by the Spirit have Christ. If you don't have Christ, you can't live by the Spirit. The Bible tells us that. So all the reasons that a non-believer could give for why they are self-disciplined, all of them have to be for something less than the glory of God's fame. And that's the distinction between self-disciplined, and there are plenty of self-disciplined people in our world. Amazing Amazing ability of saying no, but it's not the same as self-control. However, so we can talk about non-believers all we want, but this letter is written to believers. So if, if you're in Christ, focus on yourself. It's easy to shot call on other people. See, it's true that there are believers who need to grow in the spirit self-control. I'm one of them. And there is, it's true that there's believers attempting to pull this supernatural ability off of their own strength. And let me tell you this, trying to say no in your own strength, trying to say no and setting new records of not doing the naughty thing for 30 days, 60 days, by your own strength and self-will is exhausting, isn't it, loved ones? Because you'll find another thing that you're supposed to say no to, and the list is unending, because you live in this world and your body is made up of body. I took science once. So I want to walk through scripture. We have a very short time, and I'm going to speak northern fast, okay? So I want you to turn in your scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's another letter written by Paul to a church that had struggles. And let me tell you this. This church had crazy issues because they had people in it, just like our church. This church really battled with sexual sin. In fact, they had people in their congregation that were committing and participating in different forms of sexual sin. And Paul writes and says, it's like you're proud of it. It's like you're happy for them. And we would judge them and say how messed up they are. It's just that we don't know all we know each other yet. That's, we're not any different, really. So this letter, right in the middle of this letter is a chapter, chapter 6, that in my years of growing up in church, Christian school, K-12, Bible comprehensive degrees in college, been a part of pastoral ministry for over a decade. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone preach it. I just, maybe I just don't remember or my heart wasn't in tune. But this is a passage that is linked, I believe, with the fight for why it's important, why self-control is important, and why it matters what we do with our bodies. Are you ready? Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 9. These are not very popular passages to preach at church. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is really a theological, relational, logical plea for self-control, I believe. Verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sounds a lot like the Galatians passage, doesn't it? We've already read. And another list. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, which is interesting because he relates sexually immoral and adulterers, like two different words there, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Basically, everyone in their own strength won't get into heaven. <laughs> I believe that we probably all fall into all these. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. Didn't we sing this this morning? See, we sing the same gospel that Paul preaches. It's not, it's not simply our message that we made up. This is the message of Christ. And that is what some of you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, not because you worked so hard. Let me tell you that Jesus did the work and you can find rest in him. He loves you. He loves you anyway. He loves you even if you're in the naughty list. (laughs) Paul shares a popular quote of the day in verse 12. Everything is permissible for me. Yes, some of the Galatians believe that, right? It doesn't matter how we live. I can do whatever I want to do because I've got Christ. Yes, but not everything is beneficial. Again, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Underline that. And filter your life through that. How many masters can someone have? Who is the master today? Food for the stomach and stomach for food, another popular quote. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he unites himself with a prostitute as one and one with her in body? Something, something supernatural happens in the act of intimacy, Paul is saying. You can't just use your body flippantly. Do you not know that he unites himself with a prostitute as one with, body, with her in body? For it is said, the two will become flesh. You know who said that? The Lord. We see it in Genesis. We see it in the Gospels. We see it again in Ephesians. But he unites himself with the Lord as one with him in spirit. So in light of all these truths about your body, flee from sexual morality. What are the kinds of sexual morality? Adultery. How we use our eyes. The lust in our minds. Sleeping with men, sleeping with women. That God has given a gift to men and women. It's marriage and he's given a gift to marriage and it's called sex. At least that's what we see here in the scripture. But there's a popular belief that, well, God loves me regardless of how I live, so I can do what I want with my body. Well, let's look on. Flee from sexual morality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? See, this, that changes. If we actually believe that, that changes how I view food. It changes how I view intimacy, how you view using my body. It views how, what I think that my mind is allowed to do. Why? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And what was the money used to purchase us? The answer is the blood of Christ. That's the word redemption, which we sang about this morning. The last verse, I don't know if I've ever heard preached. And this is the one that I think we each need to think about for a while. (laughs) But we can't think about it for another person. (laughs) We think about it for ourselves. And here it is. Are you ready? Therefore, read it with me, would you? Honor God with your body. 
So Paul is just fighting for these people to know that there's things to say no to. The power by which we can say no and the, is by the Holy Spirit, and the motive by which we should say no is for the glory of God. Not our own glory, not for our own track record, not to make God love us more. See, there's a common misunderstanding of Christianity that Christianity is just a set of ideals or beliefs or a way of thinking or a way of getting a soul to heaven. And when we reduce the gospel to, you can get to heaven someday, we forget about all the earth stuff. Because there's a misunderstanding that Christianity is not about earth. It's only about heaven. That's selling the gospel short. When the fact is that it has, the gospel has everything to do with your body as well as your soul. So when God paid the price by giving his son to purchase his people from their sin and their guilt and their condemnation, it was to ransom their bodies as well as their souls. So this is why self-control matters and why our bodies matter. See, what does it mean to think? What does it mean when Paul says that your body was bought? It means that Christ paid the price for the people that are in his family, that have been adopted in his family, those that are saved. He bought our bodies. These bodies will be resurrected, Paul says in the text that we just read. There's several implications then, and you can write some notes on this if you'd like, several implications as a result of being redeemed, soul and body. And the first is this, really, that I ought to value my body because my body is valued by God. Look at verse 13. I mean, the Bible tells us food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Hmm. Our bodies are valued by God, so I should value my body. See, I think I grew up with a belief that was never taught to me, but it's a belief that's existed for a long time, even during Paul's day and afterward, even before. It was this belief that bodies are bad. And I conjured up this belief because when I look in the mirror, since probably around fifth grade when I really started to recognize myself, I've not been impressed with myself. <laughs> not a big fan. I'm not sure if God knew what he was doing when he was putting me together. So I began despising myself, and I find the idea, okay, well, if Christian, Christians have a list of not to do, so if sex is bad for you and food is going to really be bad for you, that kind of linked to my already preconceived false idea that bodies are bad. So then I just tried in my self-effort with loathing myself to also try not to do the naughty things as a way of trying to get God's pleasure for my life. I couldn't be more wrong. He's already pleased with me. He's given me freedom to enjoy what he's given me to enjoy within its purpose and within its context. I was all messed up. What does the Bible say? Is God against bodies or is he for them? Verse 13 tells us this, that he's for your body. He's not just for your soul. We ought to be for our bodies because the Lord is for our bodies. The Lord made the body. To be against the body then is to be against what God is for and then against the Lord. So why does God value our bodies? Well, the text gives us the answer and we're going to fly through this together. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? And we've been talking about the Holy Spirit this whole time during this series. That your body has something to do with living this life. So why does God value our bodies? Number one, he values our bodies because it houses, it's the house of the Holy Spirit. See, he used to dwell in temples, God's presence did. The temple's destroyed, and now he dwells within you, which he calls a temple. Amazing, right? Because I grew up that, hey, don't run in the church. Even though we had a one on Wednesday nights, we could run in then. Why can't we run in the church? Because the church is the dwelling place of God. Now, actually, the Holy Spirit's the dwelling place of those. He's in the lives of those that are in him. So why does God value our bodies? Because our bodies, for those that are in Christ Jesus, house the Holy Spirit. When God bought us, he did not buy us as slaves, but as dwellings. 
His aim was not to make us work for him, but to make us full of him. This is why Ephesians chapter 3 says that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. Why does God value our bodies? Because our bodies house the Holy Spirit. And another reason, our bodies are for the glory of God. Look at verse 20 again. I want to start in, uh, right before that, the, verse 19. It says, uh, you are not your own. Let me just stop there for a second. I'm sure, I have to believe, because I believe this, that there's believers here today and in our world that think that since they're saved, that they call the shots for their body. The scriptures tell us this, you were bought, you are not your own. You are not your master. Christ is your master. See, some people say, well, what I would do between my body is between me and my God. Yeah, is it for the glory, what you're doing to your body for the glory of God? This is heavy, isn't it? I think people don't, like, people don't like people telling them what to do. And so they like the scriptures to tell them what to do when it comes to heaven, but not earth stuff. They don't like other Christians telling them what to do, even though they're supposed to implore and admonish and exhort one another. And then we have authority issues. I'll call the shots with my body. This is my body given to me. It's my right. That right is given up when we place our lives in Christ because Christ gave up the right to be holding on to heaven. He came to earth. So we exchange as an exchange of rights. He is now my master. But sometimes I live like I call the shots, and that's a lie. I don't have the right. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Why does God value our bodies? He values our bodies because they house the Holy Spirit and they're for the glory of God. So the idea here is that we're supposed to use our body in a way that show that God is more satisfying, more glorious than anything else our body craves. Now we're back to the self-control issue. Why do we say no to what we ought to say no to? The motive has to be for the glory of God. Because God cares what we do with our bodies. Somehow we give him glory by how we live. So the question has to be asked, how can I partner with the Holy Spirit then as he does his work of cultivating self-control in my life. A couple scriptures for you that I've been learning lately just through counseling in my life that I hope and pray and have been praying that they give you freedom today. Are you ready? (laughs) Because isn't it true that there's got to be some people here today that something's been mastering them? Yes, Lord, I'd love for you to run my body, but I got something else running my body. And I'm not sure that you can be trusted with this thing. This thing gives me such satisfaction. This thing gives me such an escape from the pressures that I have that if I trust you with that and try to follow you, I'm not sure if I'll feel good. And feeling good is the king, isn't it? Two scriptures then. This is what you can do. This is your part as the Holy Spirit does his part. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. The person that's helping make this scripture come alive in my life is here today with no credit to him. But from me to him there is. We see in Hebrews chapter 11, there's these great statements about faith and these great people of Old Testament, the faith that they lived by. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. How many of you are trying to please God by trying to say no many days in a row to the naughty thing you ought not do and yourself will? No one but me. See, how is God pleased? Is he pleased by you not doing the naughty list? No. What does the text say? What pleases God? Please, someone say it. Faith. A synonym for faith in 2012 would be trust. And we have trust issues. And let me tell you this. Every fruit of the Spirit is a trust issue. Can I trust God that loving someone, even though I should pay vengeance back to them, that my world tells me that trusting him to love them is the way to go? God can be trusted. 
See, trust or faith is what pleases him. And self-control, then, is always a trust step, a faith step. So self-control happens when we begin to trust God, which creates then a pathway for the Spirit to give an ability or a power, if you will, to follow through with saying no to that which God has called us to abstain. So the first thing you can do on this side of self-control being cultivated and developed in your life is to trust him and know this, that he's pleased with that. That's what pleases him. He doesn't need your winning streak of saying no to the naughty thing. That doesn't impress him. He loves you. Do you trust that? So I'm at, in my formation right now, I got to tell you, I'm at, I'm at the fundamentals. Does God love me? Can I trust him? And let me tell you, some days it's, I believe he does, and for sure. And some days it's, I believe he does, but not so sure. And sometimes it's, I don't know, to both. But that's my issue, not his. Another scripture then. So we've got to trust him. He's only going to be pleased with us when we trust him, not with our staying no, our self-will to the no list. So another scripture then in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's a significant thing to say. Verse 12. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So when you come to grips to believe that by the grace of God, he loves you and that he can be trusted, then you can step forward to trust him with, okay, God, you know that I've been mastered by this thing that I hate doing, but it brings me comfort. It's my escape. It's the only thing I've known, and I am afraid to trust you because I won't have that thing anymore. What he's saying is, my grace will be sufficient. You can trust me. And let me promise you this then, a couple things. It's going to be painful, and it's going to be a process. I know a few people that have asked God to take something away from them, and they don't have that urge for that anymore, but there's only a few of them that I know. The rest of everyone else that I know, with God's power, that have said no to something, it's always been a process, because during the process, he's creating an ability for you to trust him. He doesn't want you to miss out on that process. It's going to be painful, and it's going to be a process. And I believe the Lord desires you, if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, then God wants you to tell another human being about it. The book of James tells us that we ought to confess our sins to one another, pray with one another, so that you may be healed. And a lot of people think that's all just about physical healing, but I like to think, and I believe from all of Scripture, that there's a spiritual healing, there's a bondage breaking that can take place when we go with the grace of God to tell another human being that we think has some victory in life and saying, this is beating me, will you pray with me? And now you're known. You don't have to believe the lies that you're the only one. That's a lie. Hmm. Faithfulness to Christ depends on our devotion to the goal that we have before us, which is glorifying God. And you can trust him, and you can count on the fact that he loves you. See, Jesus said that if anyone wants to follow him, they must first deny themselves, take up the cross, of and we think, well, who can do it then? No one has the ability to do it. The Holy Spirit wants to enable you. He will enable you because that which God has called people to do, he always enables them to do. Hmm. See, I can promise you that in some area of your life that you are seeking freedom from, that you're seeking self-control over by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be painful to overcome, but he longs to give you the ability to overcome it. Will you trust him? Hmm. Whatever it is that you know that has your body in bondage, if it's, if it's the thing you've come to accustom for, for comfort, or for identity, for release, then trusting in Christ to abstain, trusting in Christ as your master rather than anything else, will be painful, but always worth it. Because at the end, you'll be free of shame and guilt. <laughs> Does anybody need that? 
See, when you say yes to Christ as the master of your heart, as he's developing self-control in you, he doesn't want to remind you of the dumb things you've done. But our sin, our flesh, always reminds us. Remember, you're still a loser because you can't beat this. That's not how Jesus talks. A person will not then deny themselves and follow Christ. A person will not experience self-control, spirit-enabled self-control, until they trust that God loves them. And here's what's amazing about the scripture, and I'm going to conclude with this thought. The scriptures teach us that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And I think I believe for a long time, and many people here may believe, Christians around the world may believe that it's God's threats that lead us to repentance. But there's lots of people that know that there's this threat of hell, or a threat of wrath, or a threat of missing out on blessing, that still keep doing the naughty things that Christians ought not do. Isn't that right? Because the threats don't keep us from the naughty. Bad grammar, but you can flow with me, right? See, lots of people still do what they want, even though they read and know that the eternal, spiritual, or physical consequences. So I don't think God's threats ever win someone over. It's kindness. And guess what? The scriptures say that. His kindness leads us to repentance. Do you want to know why? You've probably experienced this if you had children. Have you ever had a child, one of your children, come to you and say, tell on themselves? Do you know why they could tell on themselves? It's because they think they'll live still after you tell them, after they tell you. (laughs) They don't think that you'll remove them from the face of the earth. And they'd rather be known and have that intimacy with you. What great courage, right? But, But they're counting on your faithfulness of the past that you love them. And it's the same with their Heavenly Father. So let me tell you this, and let me plead with you for this, and a pleading for my own soul. Will you trust Christ that he loves you and that he's big enough to handle this thing that's been holding you back, that's been killing you and destroying you? Will you step forward and say, I trust you with it. I want you to take me from it. I know that you love me. Will you journey with me through this process? Give me the courage to tell somebody else so that I can have people come alongside me and pray for me. I want to be healed. I want to be over this. I'm afraid. I don't believe. Help me with my unbelief. And I believe and I... It's his kindness that will lead to repentance. No one truly repents. Is this true? No one truly repents unless they first trust God and trust that he loves them. That's what will win them over then to righteousness and the spirit beginning to develop his crazy kind of love for unlovely people. His patience, his goodness, his gentleness with with other people that are so difficult to be around. This is what he wants to do in you. Has your view of God been wrong? Do you think he doesn't know what you do? Do you think he doesn't know what you're battling? He's waiting for you to come to him. He's waiting for you to experience him as a loving father saying, I've loved you the whole time, even when you do this naughty list. I want to get to work with you. You don't have to work on this by yourself. You don't have to clean your act up before you come to me. Let's go. Let's work on it together. See, that's the kind of savior we have. There's so much I think the Holy Spirit wants to do in our church for the sake of our city. And the accuser just wants to throw us stuff on us and our flesh wants to give us stuff that gets in the way of that mission. We don't have time. Here today, gone tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, for this morning, thank you. And thank you for this church. Thank you for these people that are here at this appointed time. In this moment, Lord, Lord, we know that we believe by faith that this fall there's big things for our church and we're closing the series and we're on a vacation weekend. But God, can you work it during a vacation weekend? Would you please work in our hearts? Free us from the things that we need your sized self-control over so that we may be free to follow you. 
Lord, I pray for anyone specifically here, Lord, that has something in their lives of addictions to pornography or addictions to gambling, overeating, um, buying things to try to feel good with money that they don't have. Lord God, would you just give them the courage to trust you, to know that you love them, that they can be known by other believers and not judged and journeyed with to freedom. Lord, I pray that you'll, today will be the day of repentance, true repentance for many. And Lord, we just trust in you with this. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Let's stand together and just sing a song of desperation to the Lord, of commitment to the Lord. If during this time you'd like to talk with somebody, our response team is up here, up front, every week, ready to pray with people that just want to be prayed with. No judgment. They know that they're human. They want to point you to the gospel. You can come during this song and pray with them. No one's going to judge you for coming down. Or you can find them afterwards. Have a great week.